Two Poor Bastards contains explicit content and drunken ramblings. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to Two Poor Bastards, where two friends get drunk, talk whiskey, and their favorite pop culture obsessions. This is Eric. And this is Kyle. You are in episode five of Two Poor Bastards. We're going to get into uh, kind of a Japanese-themed or culture episode. We're going to be drinking Japanese whiskey. We're going to be talking about uh, the Convergence Convention, which is sort of, I suppose it's multiple things, but... There's a lot of anime, there's a lot of manga, there's a lot of Japanese-inspired fandom going on in that place. Definitely, definitely. And we are going to be talking about our favorite anime, so sort of a Japanese-centric broad overview. We're not necessarily going to get too hard into uh, one particular topic, just kind of over some general things that get us going. And if you want us to get real deep into something specific we i mean there's definitely plenty of things that we both enjoy that we're gonna get like so far into but up in its guts right up in its guts so we'll just do a uh, a broad overview and this is episode is a couple weeks before convergence con uh which is a local I suppose, what is it, a nerd celebration every year in so, Minneapolis? What I would consider it is like when you think of convention, you hear people talk about like, oh, okay, this is an anime convention or this is a furry convention. <laughs> <laughs> Are or, they the same thing? Or something? Ooh, that's a, that's no, a thin line. They're, to- they're very different. So... Uh, Usually, you know, a lot of conventions are specific to one thing. The nice thing about Convergence is that it is an all-encompassing, basically like our show, we talk about many aspects of pop culture. Convergence covers many, many aspects of pop culture as well. And that's the beautiful thing about it is yeah. it's, you know, you're not limited to one thing. So all, all of nerddom is represented and because of that, it's huge, and I feel like it's a really successful and awesome thing to go to. All right. So, what's the first thing first? We need to get into the whiskey, which is a Japanese whiskey. I'll let you kind of get into what we're drinking and your thoughts. I have a couple of thoughts of my own, if you will. So, since we're doing a Japanese-themed episode, we picked up some Japanese whiskey. Uh, what we got is one of my favorites. It's uh, Nika the Taketsuru. And this this particular whiskey right here, I would say is very, very similar to Macallan 12. Um, you could even do a blind taste test of them both together and you might not be able to tell which one is which. Um, so just like brief overview, um, Takatsuru, uh, Masataka Takatsuru is a Japanese man who went to Scotland 
and learned how to make uh, basically scotch whiskey from the locals and then took all of his knowledge and a wife back to Japan and started up a distillery. Uh, Nika being one of the bigger ones, you've also got Suntory, you know, make it Suntory time, is another big one. But um, the, the flavor profile on this, right up my alley. And with that, we'll get we'll get into the Ooh. nose, we'll get into the tasting, and then All we'll right. get into... So this is the first time that I've ever had Japanese whiskey. I, I did some research into the, how it started and, and, you know, the distinctions, I suppose. This is the first time that I've ever tasted it, so this is going to be good. Let's do it. And I feel like this is the perfect time after just coming off of doing a scotch tasting in our last episode. Right. For you to get into this. And by the way, we're already mildly intoxicated because we were drinking something else before we got into this episode. So we're already kind of, like, the juice is already loose. It's like, loose. We had to make a quick stop at the liquor store to grab this. We didn't want to do the Japanese episode without having a Japanese whiskey. Right. We were going to do something else, and we had to finish our pours before we got into this. Indeed. So, all right, let's let's, let's smell this. The, shit. Let's smell this shit. Oh, yeah, that's definitely. You know, I almost get a tequila. Definitely has a, a floral and fruity bouquet. Yeah, that's that's kind of about weird. it. It smells fucking delicious. It does smell delicious. I don't. I don't know what kind of barrels this is stored in, but if I didn't know any better, I would say this is definitely sherry casked. But I doubt that it is. I mean, I haven't heard of any Japanese whiskey finishing in other barrels. And I'm not... What do you think that they use? If they were to do oak, they would have to import oak, right? They could do that. Otherwise, there is a specific Japanese oak. It starts. It's like Mizunura or something... I'll have to correct myself later, but there's a specific oak in Japan that um, some of their whiskeys are aged in. There's a, there's a, I don't know if it's a tangy aspect, but there's, it reminds me of tequila a little bit. Like, and I'm not talking like shitty mezcal. I'm talking like nice. There's something about it. There's like, as, as being a guy who doesn't drink much other than the brownest of brown liquors. Like I don't the really, towns. I don't really fuck with tequila, so I don't know. I couldn't add to that, so I'm definitely going to take your word on it. I'm not going to drink tequila, but I will. Okay, I'll give you some a couple good things at some point in time, because tequila is also good. I mean, again, brown is mostly the way to go with life. I mean, but if it's an aged tequila, of course, it's going to be brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Smells it smells good. good. Yeah, it, I completely agree with you. It smells delicious, actually. We'll go from the both the beginning and the end of the whiskey circle of life. <laughs> smells good. It smells good. Let's taste it. All right. Smoky. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I get right away. Slight oaky. This is a non-aged stated whiskey. I should bring that up. Concerns me a little, but it's still very good. It's kind of par for the course these days with whiskey because the demand is so high that age statements are going away. Or if it has an age statement, it's going to be very expensive. Right. Right. Sweet. 
Yep. Like candied fruits, I'm getting a little bit of. The slightest hint of like, and I hate this flavor, like black licorice flavor. That, I get the hint, like slightest hint of that. But in a good way. I don't mind like an anise aftertaste, I suppose, would be the best way to put it. That's good. Anise in a very small dose actually does complement other flavors really well. Like the anise you get in a sausage on a pizza. <laughs> they put absolutely. In that kind of thing. You're right, absolutely. I think it, it could add to a savory... It ha- it adds an extra note into like a, a, the savory flavor. And when you're talking about whiskey being sweet, a slight anise flavor does add... Accentuate, I suppose. But, that's that, but saying that, the sweet thing, this is a very sweet whiskey to me. And I like that. And that's what I crave. And what's weird is like, I, I don't smell sweet when I smell, or maybe I'm already sauced. I don't know. I do get the sweet smell. Because I, I, what I pick up is the, the smoky woodish, savory smell. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily get the sweet right out of, uh, when I taste it, it tastes very sweet. Not very sweet, but it tastes sweet. And I feel like I should just add, if you're new to whiskey, you might not get that sweet flavor right away until you get a little more versed and start drinking a little bit more. You have to develop your palate a little bit. So if like, you're just blasting right into it, you know, you just turned 21, I'm going to the liquor store, I'm buying this, you might not pick up what we're picking up on because you just have to start drinking a little bit more. Well, right. And I think you have to acclimate your palate to drinking straight booze. Yes, you do. You cannot, you know, if you're, especially like for myself, if you're, well, I won't say myself. If you're used to drinking, say, beers or you're used to drinking mixed drinks, they do a lot to try and mask the, I suppose, a lot of the flavors of the, the booze. And you, you lose a lot in a mixed drink as far as the subtleties right. and the flavor profile. So you you end up getting, I, I would say, a lot of the burn of, a, of an alcohol and not necessarily all of the, the flavor profiles that are actually really good. It doesn't seem smooth to oh. you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as you... The thing I like, and I think you could develop a, a, a palate really quick because the first go round, like your first pour, is going to be a little harsh. And you're kind of, if you're not used to it, you're going to have to work your way through it. But once you start getting into your second and your third, the, the harshness, I suppose, goes away. And then you're able to start to pick up other aromas and flavors. Or not at all by that time because uh, it's well, too Well, I would say up. by your like your four, fourth or fifth, you're just it doesn't taste like anything. I like how you said that with like a slight Looney Tunes drunk hiccup. Because I straight on. up did have a like a booze hiccup in real life. All right, anyways, go forth, good sir. Uh, going off of that, you know, I'm biased. I really like this stuff, and and it is just again to state what is it, Nika. The Takatsuru. Takatsuru. Pure malt. 
Beer malt. So, I mean, it's a single malt, malted barley. That's what it's distilled from. So I did do a little research into this just to give a little factual context to what we're doing and kind of the history of Japanese whiskey as opposed to just being like, it's Japanese whisk. The juice is loose and it's great. You know, Japanese whiskey used to have like a really, really bad stigma that went along Definitely. with it. And it wasn't until recently when it the uh, Yamazaki 18 year was named Whiskey of the Year that it just like catapulted Japanese whiskeys into the upper echelon of the whisk world. You know what's crazy to me is that doing the research, how long Japan has been making whiskey. It's a long it's time. It's a very long time. And I, when you think about, if you want, like, let's just say that we're talking about craft distilleries. A lot of those are in wrap crap distilleries there a lot of them are are modern distilleries they're using a lot of romanticized words and a lot of bs you know backstory to sell this amazing story of their brand but they're modern they're new they might be in their tradition of say a bourbon whiskey or, or whatever it is but japan has been legitimately making whiskey for well over 100 years and they're doing it right, just like all other aspects of Japanese manufacturing. Yeah, there is a there's an exactness. They there's put a, their all into it. Yeah, absolutely. And what I like about it is that they, you know, initially really go after Scotch whiskey, reproducing Scotch whiskey flavors and picking sites to reproduce accurately a particular kind of thing. And and as they've progressed, it's become as opposed to trying to reproduce scotch they're becoming more and more japanese i suppose adding in their own elements to it to make it unique Mm -hmm. and in my opinion in my rank of whiskeys japanese whiskey is my second favorite after american stuff having to i mean it's very good this is really good you know i as being new to japanese whiskey Whiskey. Whiska? Whiska, bitch. Whiska, baby. Uh, it is... It's unique unto itself. Like, I don't necessarily feel like what we're drinking here. So this is... Specifically, it is the Sneka Whiskey Pure Malt. I suppose that's just what it is. It doesn't really kind of go into any... I, we didn't get any of the... the fancier or offshoot of the whiskey but it's it's distinct and i like i like the flavor profile of it like i could drink this on a regular basis and not feel like it's definitely i could sit and drink a whole bottle like we almost did with the last episode yeah i'm good at that you know going off of that that made me think of what the alcohol content in it and it's it is. It's forty three percent. So we're getting a little bump up from what we had last show. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that was forty percent. I'd be really interested to know what this tastes like at a higher proof. Me too. I'd be very now. Can you get higher proof with this? You can't. What the actual fuck? No. And I mean, this reflects the Scotch thing. Usually, that's around forty percent. That's usually what you see the most. American so they've retained. Whiskeys certain elements of the scotch tradition then 
But then again, it could also be like they have discovered that, you know, changing the proof on things, this might be the ideal percentage for the ideal taste. In, in all honesty, if it's it's coming from Japan, I'm just going to trust that it that's it's the best. Because it's they're good. so exacting and they're so precise and meticulous with whatever the fuck that they're doing that I'm not I'm not going to question the fact that for you know this proof is the mm-hmm. right proof. And it's so weird. It's you know you're going from the butt of the whiskey world's jokes to the darling mm-hmm. of the whiskey world. And like I said earlier, this happened when Yamazaki 18 year got named whiskey of the year. It was a few years back. And because of that, the popularity of it went out of control. Supply can't keep up with demand. And now age statements are disappearing. Yep. I remember, I specifically remember a time going into a liquor store near my house uh, when I was younger and not as well versed in seeing a year of, or not a year, a bottle of Yamazaki 18 in like a fancy wood box for right around $98. And I remember thinking like, wow, $98, this is an 18-year-old Japanese whiskey. That's really cool. I didn't really know about it at the time, so I never bought it. And I just kind of left it. And I just thought in my head like, this was really cool. Someday I'd like to try that. Now the same thing, Yamazaki 18. It's about $250 retail. Shit's on. And I mean like, and that's if you can find it. Aftermarket, it's going to be way more. And it's just like, it's just gone insane, and now all these distilleries have stopped doing age statements because they can't keep up with demand, and they're just pumping out what they can. Like, my very favorite Japanese whiskey, like, I love the Takatsuru that we're drinking right now, but my very favorite one is the Hibiki um, mm-hmm. by Suntory. And Hibiki is actually a blend of whiskeys. Yep. So it's Yamazaki, it's... Um, the other one is the Hakushu, and I think it might be some other things, but you used to be able to get that in a 12-year, used to be able to get that in a 17-year and a 21-year, and now that they've stopped doing all of the age statement ones, like when you try to get a bottle of this other stuff, the price is just fucking out of this world. So 12-year used to be around 70 bucks. Then when they announced that they were stopping it, it was around 100 And now that it's not done anymore, like, I've seen people buying it for over $200 for a bottle of the 12-year-old, which is crazy. Because oh, yeah. I used to think to myself, like, maybe I'll get a 21-year-old because in the secondary market it was around 400 bucks. Like, I'd really treat myself. It, yeah, that's not going to happen now, and I'm never going to have this. Sad days indeed. In Japan, you might... Be able to still find an age stated one. I don't know if they stopped doing it over there, but definitely over here in America, no more age statement stuff. That's lame. So I will say, like looking at the bottle, I think it's a very attractive bottle. It's uh, black and gold. It's got a twist top, which is interesting to me. But it's a it's a very pretty bottle. So I'll just aesthetic wise, I'll I'll give it a thumbs up. Um, is that your going off of this on the bottle an interesting thing to note is like dark colored whiskeys are attractive because that means that they've usually aged longer and this looks in this bottle like a very dark whiskey Mm -hmm. but 
the bottle isn't clear it's smoked so the bottle the glass on the bottle itself is a little bit darker and since the label on the front of it is black it leads to it looking a little bit darker than it actually is so i think that's interesting that is interesting Uh, well it's certainly i think what's interesting about it is that if you're into whiskey you would know that darker whiskey means it's aged more right right if you don't know any better you would just be like that's a whiskey some dark ass juice some dark juice the juice is loose so they're trying to fool people maybe that are would know a little bit about whiskey but they, if they know that if a darker whiskey means that it's been aged more they would be able to see through that maybe i feel like it goes in line more with it being a non-aged statement bottle i would say that looking at the whiskey through a regular glass it's more of an amber color it it does you know what it does just on its own looking at it in the glass it does have a very nice color but at we talked about in the previous episode is it colored is it colored i don't know do they add shit to it so that's pretty that's good so did you cover your aspect of what you wanted to go over oh definitely so what i did is i researched the japanese whiskey a little bit so Japan, Japan, Japan has been producing whiskey since about 1870. Uh, it was first first commercially produced in 1924. The first distillery is Yamazaki, uh, and again, it's done similar to Scotch. So, the two best companies known for producing. Uh, Japanese whiskey is Suntory and Nika, and we're drinking Nika. Uh, they produce blended single and blended malt scotch style whiskeys. And then the two uh, influential figures is Sinjiro Tori, founder of Suntory, originally known as Kodasukiya, and then Masataka Takasuri founder of Denaporaja Kajua, later known as Nika. And I am butchering these fucking names. I, yeah, I'm... Um, <laughs> can I see? Can I see the card here? Go ahead. I took a little bit of Japanese in college. I've got some friends who majored in Japanese. So I know a little bit around how to say some of this stuff. I don't think you can read my handwriting, so... No, I can't read your handwriting, yes. so... I it might be butchered, but we're I'm gonna definitely butcher Scotch pronunciations. Whatever we're gonna as we go through the show. Listen, everything we're gonna butcher, and we're gonna apologize right now. Episode five, we apologize for everything. So (laughs) we got a little loose. Yeah, and we're definitely like I'm loose. Holy shit! So before this, we got into Knob Creek single barrel select rye which is 115 proof and then got into this so we're a little uh oof yeah no apologies no apologies none we don't apologize so japanese companies are vertically integrating meaning that they uh run both the distilleries and the brand brands of blended whiskeys and they do not trade typically with competitors is the final card that i have on this run of 
No selling to non-distiller producers. Right. So... Which they couldn't because the demand's so high anyways, they wouldn't be able to do that. Right, exactly. So that's my little piece, you know, as far as historically accurate, factual information. Because I think once we get a little loose, I completely lose track of facts and correct timelines, so... Yeah, we'll keep it moving. So... We're going to go into... Bottom line. Oh, yeah. Nika the Takatsuru is some bomb-ass shit. It is some bomb-ass shit. I will give it two thumbs up definitively. It's tasty. I'll give it two, like, okay symbols below the waist. And when you look (laughs) at it, you get punched in the arm. Two of those. (laughs) Out of two. That's pretty high. Very high rating for this. Yeah, I mean, I'm really... I didn't know what to expect for a, a Japanese whiskey. To me, and I'm going to be honest with you, when I initially thought Japanese whiskey, I thought that was an oxymoron. And that's what it was for the longest time. A lot of people thought that. Like, how would you even... Pre- but understanding Japanese culture, understanding... Japanese people love whiskey. So fun fact, for the, a very, very long period of time, Four Roses bourbon was only sold in Japan. So it was produced in America here, but you could only buy it in Japan. Now that's a different story. You can get it here, but for a time, that's the case. I, and it's interesting because for, I mean, at least I've had the, ent- I suppose, entry level of, of it. Like yellow label? Yeah, four roses. it's okay. Like I'm not. I, I would like to like Four Roses, but I find only some of their single barrel selections really do it for me. Yeah, I mean, it's, to me, it's interesting that they, they focus on the Japanese market for being an okay whiskey. It was owned by a Japanese company. Really? Yeah. Okay, then. So there's um, Beam Suntory. Oh, damn. Partnership between them. So one of the things I didn't get into is that Nika was formed by a master distiller that originally worked for Nika. So it was basically one person that started, sorry, Nika, and then, is it Suntory? Well, they split off and formed the two main companies for whiskey in Japan. I'm sure there's other companies, but just the two main ones that you associate with Japanese whiskeys are associated with each other. Of course, because that's such a Japanese thing anyways. I want to associate with all Japanese whiskeys. Mm. I, I feel you on that one. Just all of them. Get inside me. <laughs> all right. Next next subject is... Let's move it along. Convergence. Convergence. A I convention. I've never been. Ever. Eric has never been to Convergence. I am a seasoned veteran of going to Convergence. And we are both primed and ready to go. I bought my ticket. I bought my pass. We're ready to rock. We have the time off. It is always... So here in Minnesota, Convergence is always around the 4th of July weekend. So this year it falls upon the 8th... I'm sorry, the 5th through the 8th. So it'll be the day after. It's always Thursday through Sunday. So it's the day after 4th of July. And we'll be there for all days of fun. Sunday's kind of a wash. That's usually like get your shit together and get out. Or like the stragglers of the uh, panels, that kind of thing. Sure. For the good people who don't get destroyed partying. 
But uh, yeah, we're ready to go. We're going to have a good time. I'm introducing Eric to it. But this year, there's a little bit of drama. I, I know. you. I, I read this. I got the email after registering. I got the drama email. Okay, so this year the um, this year is the twentieth anniversary of this per- particular convention. Natural twenty, as they're stating. Natural twenty, like if you're rolling a twenty-sided die. Um, <laughs> I didn't even catch that. <laughs> you have a lot to learn, my my young nerd. You have a lot to learn. <laughs> so we're going, and the big drama this year is okay. So in the hotel, it's at the Double Tree in Edina. And in this particular hotel, there is a pool area inside the hotel. And there are two levels of rooms that surround the pool. And every year, these rooms are designated as party rooms. Now, the party rooms usually start going at 10. They're all themed. So, for instance, there could be a, say, a Star Trek-themed room, a Ghostbusters-themed room, which is my favorite one of the years. Uh, Yeah, obviously. And, you know, people who start these party rooms, they decorate them. They put a lot of time and effort making them themed. And they serve alcohol in these rooms. for As one does. As one does. And, you know, you have to be of drinking age. You have to show ID for these party rooms if you're going to get a drink. Does a mushroom stamp count? Does not. Oh, fuck. You were out of luck there. So this year... Uh, there had been a lot of back and forth between the people who set up Convergence and the people at the Doubletree Hotel. And what it ended in is this year, the people who are doing party rooms are not allowed to serve their own alcohol like they always have been. So if they want to do it this year, they have to A, buy the alcohol from the hotel and B, hire someone who is an employee of the hotel to serve said alcohol. So this has been a big to-do. Now, Honestly, yeah. as a person attending this convention, it's always been like an okay BYOB, basically, or BYOA in my <laughs> case, because I bring my own alcohol. I don't fuck with beer because that shit's too weak for me. Um doesn't really affect me because mostly these party rooms serve the cheapest of the cheap alcohol, making mixed drinks, shots, that kind of thing that are kind of disgusting. Right. But it is a big deal to a lot of people that go and expect to go to these party rooms and do that. And like Convergence is cool. I like the nerd aspects. All during the day, there's all kinds of stuff to do, whether it be panels Movies to watch, you know, signings from various authors or other things, that kind of thing. But really, Convergence doesn't start till after 10 o'clock when the parties start going. Fuck to the yes. And shit gets going. Because I am a party boy by nature. And And that's what I will look forward to. So this has kind of fucked things up. And, like... Me, if you know me, if you know me from Convergence, you know that I always have whiskey and I'm always giving it out for free. So if you are perhaps a Minnesota person and you are a Minnesota person who is attending Convergence, know this. If you find me, you will always get a pour for free. So how much is your investment as far as whiskey goes? Because... You get an average whiskey bottle, even a decent, it's 
25 to 30 bucks, right? So mm-hmm. how much do you splurge, if you will, for convergence? I'm always willing to do $100 plus in whiskey. I like to do, uh, usually I'm prepared with a 175 for each day, like a fresh one for each day. So I've three-ish, again, because I'm a I'm a connoisseur already, so. Yeah, so really the, the days of convergence is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Thursday is kind of a buildup, so it's not so much. Friday and Saturday are the main days, and Sunday is basically the get your shit together and get out day. So that's, right. that's we don't really think about that. So maybe I'll have a regular 750 for Thursday, and then a 175 for each day on Saturday, Sunday, or Friday, Saturday. Now, do you have, each day do you do a different whisk, or do you like stick with like a Buffalo Trace 175? I really go with what's available. I used to do um, like bullet rye. Okay. Gotcha. One seven fives for each day. But whatever's available I'll do. So do you looking improve? around there aren't a lot of one seven fives available, so that's really the impressive that's the thing I was thinking about because we've I've been to two liquor stores today. There's not many one seven fives. things that I would drink necessarily. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm thinking like you're doing one seven fives. Where are you getting these from? Number one, and what are you choosing to do? I don't know. I think this year I might just do like Evan Williams single barrel. I'll, I'll grab maybe four bottles of those and do those for the days that I'm around. And that's your contribution to convergence. Yeah, and it's it's free. If you find me, it's for free. I'm out there to help anyone out to get drunk. Yeah. It's a community. Yeah. And I, I take care of my community. I'm really, you know, just so proud that you're so caring and sharing that you'll not let people drink super shitty whiskey. Oh, I. if you find me, you aren't getting garbage. I'm the whiskey guy. Now, let me ask you this. Are you known as the whiskey guy? Like, if you show up, like, how long have you gone? To convergence. So this will be my fourth year. So do you have a reputation at this point in time? To some people, yes. Like if you know me, you know I will have whiskey for you. And you will get fucked up. Yeah. And if I don't have it on me, then come to my hotel room with me because I have it in there and then we'll get you whiskey. Yeah. So do you do you have like a flask for yourself? Or do you just like communal, like 175? It it depends on what I have. Like if I've got a bag to carry my stuff, usually I have it on me. Like when I'm giving stuff out, I always have plastic cups, like the little small ones that do like two ounces. cute. I like that. So I have that so everyone can have a pour. But like I find that just because of things that have happened in the past if you're drinking what you're giving out that's a good thing for the people because you aren't you know there couldn't be anything in it that's bad sure like you're not roofing people so let me ask you this and i'm gonna put a pin what is the actual metric of a pour like what is the amount of whiskey that attributes to a pour so these little cups that I get are like two ounce cups. Okay. But usually I pour it to if somebody says like I just want a little bit, I'll do it to whatever somebody wants. Okay, it's very considerate. So 
whatever you want, that's what you get because I'm here for you. Oh, man, you're so kind. I am. It's, you know, the community feeling. It's your contribution to the event as a whole to make sure that the juice is loose. Yeah, but I mean, it's not just about that. It's not just about getting drunk. There's many, many things that happen at Convergence that are the sum of all the parts are better than one little thing I am like me so, giving out like, whiskey. You have no idea how excited I am to experience this for the first time. And I'm very excited to take a new person who hasn't gone before and just like throw you right into the middle. Like right into the fucking pit. I'm going to get like right into the guts of convergence and experience everything. So, you know, like I said, like the party doesn't really get going till after 10. So before that, we've got all kinds of things we can go to. We can go to pan- discussion panels. We can go to like craft events. We can go to all kinds of stuff. I would love to get be deep into crafting. Is there going to be beads? I, you know, there is. It's different every year. So like <laughs> the thing where we can go make stuff, it could be all kinds of things. So we'll see. Make your own anal bead set. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But really what's got me going this year is, despite the party rooms being fucked up, there are more panels, discussion panels this year that I'm interested in than there has been any year that I've gone. So there's going to be a lot to keep us busy during the day. I'm excited. And they can be lame. And it's always the case. We aren't obligated to stay at any of them, but... We'll go from each one to each one and see what's up. And if we don't do that, uh, there is a commons area by the pools, too, where people can congregate, show off, show off their cosplay, if that's their, you know, your thing or their thing. You can see cosplay. You can talk to people. There's events going on there. They do, like, LARPing sword fights. So, I mean, that might sound really dumb, but last year mm-hmm. I saw people get bloody doing these things where they're using, That's like, sort of foam swords and stuff. Contradictory to what LARPing is, right? I mean, that you you don't go to do that and actually get violenced. Oh, but it happens. Mm. Blood will be spilled because... Ah. Nerds take shit seriously sometimes, so that's definitely something that can happen. All right, okay. Nerds take shit seriously. That's something I need to... Like, this is all shit that I I need to, like, take in, meditate on, and be prepared for. You will be so overwhelmed. And this is just your first year going. There's going to be more stuff than we can possibly do when you're there because there's so much going on. Like, if you want to rave until... Like six in the morning, that's an option. Like what? We, yeah, we can definitely do that because that might be an option. I it depends. It depends, but it might be an option. We can go watch movies. They have an area where they specifically. There's show no movies. watching movies unless there are girls, goth girls there for me to. You won't be able to see anything because it's dark and there's lots of couches. And I find it's a good place to nap if you're partying all night because they show movies twenty four hours in there. Okay, good. Good. So that's a napping lounge. Um, so the things that I'm really excited to show you at this convention are, um, number one, my favorite thing is an event called Vilification Tennis. 
So at this, it's a strange name, but what it is, it's basically they have teams of people come up on the main stage there. So there's a main stage where the big events happen. Um, They will have teams of people go up there and they basically take turns insulting each other. And there is a judge that calls points. And after you get so many points, you win. So if, like, if you burn your opponent really bad, you will get a point. And after X amount of points, like if you've burned them fucking enough, like humiliated them, you win. And that, to me, that's my favorite thing that happens during Convergence. So like I like what I immediately wonder is like, as a competitor in this, do you think that those people prepare for like a year straight of like the worst burns possible they definitely do they definitely do and a lot of these people know each other so it just makes it even better because they can really add personal things into it um the other thing that i really like that is a sort of a new thing to me is what they call powerpoint karaoke (laughs) just it seems like like, these are prog rock or, like, modern, like, indie band names to me. That's actually pretty sweet. Yeah. And PowerPoint Karaoke is half of what you think it is and half of what you not think it is. There's no singing. There's no anything going on. So what it is is people go up. They're given a topic. And they have to give a PowerPoint presentation on this particular topic. But they do not know what the PowerPoint slides that they're going to get are. <laughs> What? So it, it gets really crazy. So, like, you could be given a topic like road repair in Minnesota, which is really terrible here because the potholes are terrible and nothing really gets done. And there's always road construction going on from spring to fall and into winter and right. no shit ever gets done. So you could be given this topic and you are given these crazy slides that have nothing to do with it and somehow you have to, the person presenting it has to relate that into it. So the comedy level can get pretty out of hand, which is great. That sounds amazing to me. I'm ex- The hype level for myself, like just going into it, I'm already excited just being kind of what the themes are. But the shit that you're describing takes it to a whole other level. Right. And you're going to meet so many random people, and you're going to have a good time, and you're going to see people that you do know, and it, it'll it be great. It's like the community and coming together thing. Like, I'm putting my fingers in between each other, like Ooh, lacing them together. It's like just like so shit's tight. getting real tight. Ooh. And then the newest thing that I've discovered that is my, my new favorite thing there is the erotic readings panel. So there's like a group of people who go up and they take turns reading like erotic fan fiction of the craziest shit ever. It sounds like the F plus, but continue. It's, It's so crazy and so funny and ridiculous that it's, I can't handle it. It's so good. And not only are we going to get to go see this and hear this erotic reading on the first day that we're there Thursday. The next day on Friday, there is a fan panel for one of the authors of the shit that they'll be reading. And I just, I know it's going to be beautiful. So we're definitely going to do that. I, you know, again, as you said, there's so much stuff to unpack and to go to. And, you know, while this is all going on, you're going to see a lot of things. You're going to hear a lot of things. You will see a lot of really great cosplay 
like people who so put... th- that's one of the things I want to want to say when I talk about is this is different than Comic Con. This is different than E three. So is the cosplay on point for convergence? There is definitely on point cosplay. And then the other point that I was going to make is you will definitely see some of the worst cosplay <laughs> you will ever see in your life. You will see shit that's so bad that you want to cry or laugh or cry laughing. <laughs> laugh crying. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. You get it all. It's everything all together. I... It's a beautiful, I'm truly excited for this like experience. gathering of social misfits. But it's not like the gathering of juggalos. It's not like that. Maybe like ten percent of it, because <laughs> I'm sure there's probably some juggalos there too. So with that said about convergence, I'm really excited to introduce you to my two best con friends, uh, Lucy and Kalen. Woo! I am excited as well. Who are uh, big shot cosplayers. Uh, and, and hopefully, after that, we can get them on the show and we can maybe do a thing where we talk about cosplay. Absolutely. I, you know, I understand cosplay. I know what it's about. But I don't really, I don't necessarily understand the the primal attraction to it or what makes it such a huge thing. So I'm very interested to get into the mind of someone that does it, why they do it. Other than being like, hey, I'm a, I'm a hot chick that can pull these outfits off. You know, like, what makes you continue to do it? I'm very interested to get into the mind of, of those two, if you will. We'll try and make it happen. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, it'll happen. I'm, I'm confident. And then we'll hang out with them, obviously. Yes. And, you know, experience. To me, it's going to be interesting is... How many people will know them, and what will be people's reaction to them? You know, are they sort of minor celebrities in their own right, or? Well, I've found that like usually Kaylin is the one who's more involved in it. She goes to a lot of different conventions. Most of them are anime specific ones, and she goes like all out for those. I find that when Lucy and Kaylin are at Convergence, they do like a casual version of what they usually do. So what? I mean, that's interesting that they're they're casual in the home state, and when they go to the other places, they're like going bee deep, and it's it, it's just an interesting. I you know, and it all depends on the situation because I've seen them go all out. I've seen them keep it casual. It's just how they're feeling it. Oh, well, that's, that's totally fair. I. And I really want to get into the mind of what draws someone to that. Like, because I will never be a, a good cosplay person. I don't have the body type or the, the I, I suppose, the figure for that. You can't say that because there's always something that you could be. Like, I am not big into that kind of thing, but I have done a member of Cobra Kai. Oh, which is now gaining popularity with the new uh, show that was on Netflix or not Netflix. I'm sorry, on YouTube, the Cobra Kai show. And I've gone as like poor man sub zero. <laughs> I, I will say that it was like I've seen pictures of that. It's pretty pimp. I want to go a scorpion personally. Myself. I, and it came out, you know, it took five minutes to make the costume and it came out really well. So it's just it's how you do it and how you carry yourself. But I mean, there's all levels. There's people who have spent, like, all year 3D printing stuff out for their costumes, and there's people who throw shit together, like, low-cost 
cosplay right type thing. Some goodwill cosplaying. Yeah. But it's I mean it's all in the end it's all fun. Just representing some that you're something that you're really passionate about. Sure. And so I'm interested in going to experiencing it and then you know and obviously coming back to this format and just talking about the experience and yeah, we're good. We're definitely having a show specifically about convergence when we're done with it. Absolutely. So, what else is there about convergence? Is that all your all your pre-convergence? That's the pre-convergence spasm? that I'm going to give you, and I'm just going to throw you into the middle of it, and we'll talk about anything else after that. All right. So the third part is you know so we talked about so it's kind of Japanese theme. So we're Japanese whiskey convergence con which. I mean, it's geekdom in general, but obviously it's very slanted towards uh, Japanese culture and anime and that sort of thing. And so the, the third part of the, the show this week is anime that's really influenced you, things that, you know, um, that kept driving you towards either be it culture, be it technology, be it, you know, uh, movies, etc. and so on. So what is what is your So I I I would like to describe my involvement with anime the same way that one of my friends put on her dating profile. <laughs> Please do I'm excited. On an online dating thing. And forgive my language, but on that she said like I'm into anime. But I'm not retarded about it. <laughs> and that that is the position that I would like to take about it. Like, I like anime. It's been something that I've liked for a long time of my life. But, like, I'm not socially inept Sure. as far as that goes. Like, it doesn't rule my life. I'm not completely obsessed with it. I enjoy it for what it is as an art form, which it, I mean, absolutely fucking is. So it's you are a moderate level enthusiast. I am now. I am a moderate level enthusiast. Um, years ago, I was like an extreme level enthusiast, but like back then, it was such a like far offshoot from anything, and so much wasn't available, and it was just so focused. It was a little bit different. So for me, I got the first exposure I got to anime was uh, the film Akira. Yeah. So where where did you first how were you first exposed to it? So I I first saw it when they played it on the sci fi channel. Me too, motherfucker. So it was I don't it was probably a, a Saturday. Yep, it's Saturday anime on sci-fi. Exactly. Yep. And they were playing this movie and I had just been flipping through channels and I saw it and I it was so different from anything that I had seen before. Like I started watching this and I got so involved like I was supposed to go to some family function and I basically said fuck you <laughs> to my mom when she said we had to leave like I was just so into it I could not leave up fuck you I I have to watch this I'm not going with you So what function were you going to at like midnight cuz I didn't... No it wasn't at midnight this was playing like in the middle of the day Okay 
It wasn't late. It wasn't early. Because I remember at one point, Sci-Fi did Saturday anime in the morning. Okay, I got But you. that was much later from when I saw this. So I saw this. I couldn't leave. Had to finish watching it. Said, fuck you to my family function. And I was, I was hooked from that moment on. Because this shit was so far out from the normal American cartoons that I, I had a hard time processing it. And I just needed more. I will say one of the, the first distinctions between uh, American animation that I was used to and anime was simply the, the adult content. It was a, a, an adult movie. Yes. Animated. And yes. that's the first time that I was exposed to adult ideas in an animated form. But not like Cool World. <laughs> right, not like Cool World. <laughs> Where Brad Pitt be fucking cartoons. <laughs> But there is also crazy shit happening in Japanese. Animation. Well, yeah, hentai and, and the whole tentacles and tentacles all that, and all that good shit. I'm, I'm having so more. I'll agree. Um, Akira probably had the most profound impact on me. Was that the first thing you saw? And then the next question I have before you answer that is: Was that really the first thing you saw, or was it like, did you see Voltron, or did you see uh, Robotech earlier on? I definitely saw that? those. But I'm, I, to be honest, I'm not sure. My introduction into anime was sci-fi's uh, midnight showings of anime. So what I want to do is, instead of just like verbally copulating with the things that we love, I want to give a little factual uh, bits on Akira. So Akira was made or was released in 1998, directed by Katsuhiro Otomo, produced by Rohe Suzuki, and Sanju Kato, written by Otomo in Izo Hajimoto, and it's based on the Otomo manga, which is a comic book or novel form, if you will. And, and if if you're listening and you're one of those people, I'll say it manga. Manga. I hope you're hope you're happy. We're whatever. Whatever. I mean we're you know, we're trying to blend a diverse group of people into different formats and, and ideas. So it was uh, the production budget was $10 million, which was the most expensive anime of its day. So that's a giant $10 million for an animated film in 1988 was a huge sum of money. Uh, let's see. So Otomo did not originally intend to adapt the series outside of manga. Uh, he agreed to do it but only if he could retain creative control. And what made Akira such an impactful movie was it was a fully animated movie, which means that the characters' eyes and mouths and facial facial features and arms and everything moved. It was more like a fluid movie as opposed to traditional anime at the time. So one of the drawbacks of anime of that day is that if you notice... The mouths will move and nothing else moves. And that's a way to cut corners in anime production. It is, but I also feel like they may have overdone it with some of that. Like, they're moving and their heads are shaking and they're yelling out, especially when if you were watching the dub, like we were exposed to Absolutely. back in the day. This is a little over the top. It is, certainly. But, you know, I would say Asian cinema in a general sense goes for over the top 
typically. So some of the unique features of Akira is that they pre-recorded the dialogue. So the animators animated to the act, the, the actors' performances. Have you watched it in Japanese? I have. Yep. Nice. Uh, and the total total overall animation cells is over a hundred and sixty thousand cells. It doesn't surprise me at all. It is an absolutely crazy amount of of individual frames for a movie. Uh, and as far as uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, the other things he's directed is in uh, 1987, he did Neo Tokyo. 87, he also did Robot Carnival. 88, he did Akira. 91, he did World Apartment Horror. 94, he did Jojo Bizarre OVA. 95, he, he did... He was a part of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Yeah. I did not know that. He did Memories in 95. 2004, he did Steamboy. 2006, he did Musha Shishi. And then, uh, it looks like 2013, he did Short Piece. So he was contributed to a, a short animated collection, if you will. So Kira, for me, was probably the most groundbreaking film both live action animated that I'd ever seen. It was definitely the turning point for me in my... It was so earth-shatteringly different than anything I'd ever experienced yes. prior to that. That really... The only comparative things to it would be Blade Runner. It's like, imagine Blade Runner with a whole lot of shitload of action. It's kind of the best way that I Like can, a good if, movie. Then. If you're a layman... <laughs> Because, you know, Blade Runner is a very slow, very long movie. It's a slow burn, definitely. It's a slow burn. And it never really, like, at the very tail end, it picks up a little bit with the fight scene between Roy Batty and Harrison Ford's character. But it really does, it's not an action movie. It's really a heady movie that you visually kind of take in. Where Akira is like, there's a shitload of action. There's so much stuff going on. So much going on. And with... Akira, so there's a few things that they do. So they incorporate CGI into it. So there's a few scenes where... Which doesn't look disgusting. No. To this day. To this day. So I started to rewatch that movie. And it just holds up so well. And what you see... It's... It's so unique upon itself that it is a particular... I would say genre style all upon itself that it's influenced so many other uh filmmakers anime series artists and so on i know tattoo artists that have staked their entire career on a tomo style i fucking want the motorcycle tattooed on me (laughs) what's so funny is that you and i are drawn to certain aspects of akira very differently i am all about tetsuo and his like gross formation and you're like that motorcycle's hot yes like i'm like Kaneda. i'm kind of like you know he's he's all right but he's kind of annoying to me and his motorcycle's pretty cool but i'm not like that drawn to it Get, put tattoo the pill on my back absolutely it's fucking amazing good so, for health bad for education boom so 
it's a great movie. It's obviously extremely impactful. What's your next on your list? Well, it well that was the first one that I saw, mm-hmm. so that really hooked me into it. The second thing that I saw really solidified what I I don't I don't know if I want to say love, but what I really like about anime, and that's like ultra violence. Yeah. That's one of the aspects that I just love about it. Give me that ultra violence. So the next thing that I saw after that was Vampire Hunter D. Holy shit. That's also on my list. We didn't we didn't like cross notes or cross streams at all. We're just going into this (laughs) raw dog. We're just going right into it. So Vampire Hunter D was the next thing I saw. And then I'm like introduced to this whole world of ultra violence. Oh, and so good. And that is really the thing that stuck with me is like the aspect of just hyper violent things happening. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know why Nudity, it speaks to me. Like, of course, I saw it on Sci Fi Channel again, so like the, the nudity was cut out, but. Uh, sure. I saw that. So that's a whole nother thing that we can get into after so, this. Just so you know, it's based on the manga by Hideyoki Kurichi. And it's directed by Tohyu Ashida, and the screenplay is by Yoshishushi Harana. Hideyuki Kikuchi. Correct me. The, the author of the books. Listen, I have so many books about Vampire Hunter D to borrow you, and they're all amazing. See what I like. So here's the thing about tying into this. I read an article about. Um, like there's a big controversy with Nicki Minaj doing uh, her like Chun Li thing, and people getting all butthurt about it. She got thick thighs. She can definitely do it. So the thing is, is that a a Japanese per- person retorted to someone's hatred or shade that was being thrown at Nicki Minaj. Basically, she, what she's saying is that Japanese culture takes in so many other aspects and mixes it in that you would like some things that you would consider very traditional Japanese are not Japanese at all that they're taken from Mongolia from China from Europe and they're reinterpreted and re-spit out and that Japan is a is a culture as a whole is thirsty for other influences but hyper xenophobic at the same time at the same time so Vampire Hunter D and what I like about a lot of anime is it takes European culture, history, Nordic, American, and then reinterprets it and spits it back out. So Vampire Hunter oh. D is is it Alucard? Who's the main? So the main character is D, who is implied to be the son of Dracula. Indeed. So in some other stuff alucard yes because alucard's the son of dracula so it could be that could be seen as yes it but he's d he's d but it's it's taking a a a japanese spin on a european idea right yeah and another thing like record of lotus wars is taking like the dungeons and dragons thing and doing their spin on it and and so I find that very interesting about Japanese culture is that they they reinterpret other mythologies to suit their own telling, I suppose. They, they, they make it to palatable to their own audiences. And it's very interesting. It's very... I'm drawn to it. Like, I want to see 
a Japanese interpretation of, of whatever mythology it is, be it Greek, be it Roman, English, blah, 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 blah. I would love to see a Japanese take on a Greek mythology story. It would be fucking amazing. It would be. And that's what I appreciate about anime is that you see other, I suppose, layers, levels of things that you wouldn't necessarily see as being maybe native to that culture and see what they ramp up and how they interpret it and suit it to their own cultures. I'm going to take this thing and make it awesome. Oh, yes. Is what it is. That's exactly... They're like, hey, this thing that's already really cool, Dracula and vampires, we're going to like turn it to 11 and then like full blast it. So that, I... Yeah. Again, Dracula... Uh, sorry. Vampire Hunter D, again, is, is one of my definitely early influencers that movie came out in 1985 mm-hmm. yeah holy fuck the 80s were a great time for anime the shit that they did in that era the 80s and 90s are best like when i talk about anime with people there's definitely a clear divider that i like to call the year 2000 mm-hmm. so it's like stuff before 2000 stuff post 2000 Indeed. And there's a lot of shit post-2000. Right. Because they stopped drawing from a lot of the things that made it great and almost started drawing on itself. Like pre-2000? Bomb. We're talking about some hot shit. Yeah. So let me talk about one of the things that, uh, that really got me, which is Ghost in the Shell. Yes, Ghost in the Shell, Holy definitely. Holy fuck. So it's another movie that at the time when that Ghost of the Shell came out there wasn't a live action movie nor an animated movie that really drove those points home of integration of computers technology and what society would look like as a consequence of those two things integrating with each other so uh, it's known in Japan as Mobile Armored Riot Police Ghost in the Shell uh, it's based on the manga by Masasumi Shiro. It's written by Masamune. Kazunuro Ito and directed by Mamoru Ushi. I'm butchering everyone. I'm Makanasast number one, and I, I don't, I just don't do Japan very well. <laughs> it's it's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so one of the things that I read about it was basically like when dude was making the manga series. What he noticed is that there wasn't really anything really addressing the culmination of technology and society and people and what that would look like. And it does a really, you know, it's a precursor to The Matrix. It's an influencer of The Matrix. And that movie came out in 1995, and it's fucking hot. So there's a few things that are different in the anime versus the manga. So in the anime, they made... Uh, what's her head? The Colonel? The Major. The Major. So they made the Major more adult, whereas in the manga, she's younger. Because she's basically a shell in a... It's a fake body. It could be whatever. It could be whatever. And they kind of touch on that at the end of Ghost of the Shell proper. You know, she turns into the little girl shell. And so in the manga, she's younger. In the anime, she's older, like... Mid-twenties, I suppose. Major Makoto Kusanagi. 
I have had a theory. Could even be a man. Could be an old man. Could be a young man. Because really all it is is a consciousness put into a body. And it doesn't matter what this robot, cyborg, whatever body could be. And you never know for sure. Yeah. And what's interesting is that there's not another series, be it books or movies or anime, that really touch, that expand on that idea further until Altered Carbon. And one thing I really have to say about it is, like, the ideas that are presented in this, like, as far as computer stuff goes, hacking, internet, all that kind of stuff, it was almost so far ahead of its time that it's like, how did how did they even think of this? You're absolutely right. That's one of the things that it that still, when I, I remember watching it initially, thinking the idea was so far-fetched the how like the idea of hacking a mind or erasing someone's memory or past and rewriting it and then not only rewriting it but to a specific point to have them carry out a specific action against their will in a sort of way and then not, then not even realizing what they're doing i mean it's absolutely uh, at the time, like, I, I couldn't even really... I just Super forward it. thinking. And this is a movie that was made after the manga was written. So it's yeah. like these ideas were from even before that. Right. What did you think of the movie that just recently came out with Scarlett Johansson? I never saw it. Shit. I haven't seen it yet. I actually really liked it. I went in with zero expectations. And, you know, like I say, I expect nothing. And I'm still disappointed. I thought it was a good movie. Even if they whitewashed it. So I, I feel like it's not necessarily whitewashing because Scarlett Johansson is playing a character who's originally Japanese. She was put into a shell. Right, and th- yes, this is something that I've talked about before with people when talking about the movie. So in a sort of way, yes, is it maybe dancing around, maybe putting something who's more ethnically correct to the role? Maybe. But you know what? In the anime, guess what? She's white. I do have to say the guy that played Bato in the movie was fucking perfect. He was so is, goddamn good. But the thing is, like, the main characters were white in that movie. In the and I should, Sorry. In the anime, the major and dude were white. I mean, these some gray areas, so... Gray, but I've read the from the creator him saying that they're designed as being what caucasian all right if that's the case bam so who gives a shit at that point and really it's scarlett johansson I, you're gonna complain yes there are plenty oh, of nerds are gonna complain. actresses that are maybe just as talented but it's ScarJo, and i'm get down with that any day but like i said bato fucking bato. stole that movie fuck yeah and i'm gonna make you watch that we're gonna watch it I, and i'm it's just one of those things I haven't gotten around to. The problem is there's so much content, it's hard to keep up with everything that's coming out, and then it's easy to lose track of things that have come out. You're like, it's five years later, and you're like, I can't believe you've not seen that movie. I'm like, I remember seeing a thing about it, but then I don't remember. I just kind of lost track of it. So, Ghost of the Shell, absolutely Groundbreaking, amazing. It's influenced directly the Wachowskis. 
uh, the Matrix, very high-minded, ahead-of-its-time ideas, wonderful movie. Did you say Bukowski's or Wachowski's? Wachowski's. <laughs> okay. Maybe. Maybe I said, Well, I said the Wachowski's. Is it Wachowski's? Wachowski. So it used to be the Wachowski brothers, and now it's just the Wachowski's. Yes. Because they're both... Transgendered. Yes. All right. So, and then I only have one other, like, major thing. And, and again, everything we're covering, I think everyone has covered a million times over. It's not really... Anything we're saying is really necessarily groundbreaking or original. But the next thing that really cemented my love, and it's not fair because most things are not like it, is Cowboy Bebop. I was thinking you were going to say Dragon Ball Z. Uh, no. I love Dragon Ball Z, but the thing that really endears me to anime would be Cowboy Bebop. Because it's... I watched Dragon Ball Z as a kid when it was new-ish. I am an unapologetic fucking Dragon Ball Z fan. I, don't, I have that shit out in the open. I don't care, like... When someone comes over, say I bring a lady over... And they're like, oh, wow, that's a lot of, you've got a lot of films, you got a lot of TVs. And then they like scroll their eyes on my complete collection of Dragon Ball Z. They're like, (laughs) what the actual fuck? I'm like, don't hate on me. That's great. It's, that is art. Constant throughout my life is I have loved Dragon Ball Z. So going back to our other episode when we were talking about getting into retro gaming, like as I first got this magazine that showcased Japanese games, like I see Dragon Ball Z games being covered, and it's like the love affair starts then, and it continues till now. It's I like honestly, it's such a big deal. It is, and I I really do love it. And what I, flaws what I and everything, it, I love it. It means a lot of different things to a large group of people, and I saw Dragon Ball before I saw Dragon Ball Z. Same here. And really enjoyed it. I thought just, it's really, I suppose the perspective and the and the animation style was just so different than everything that had come before, like what we're exposed to as an American audience. Because you know, Scooby Doo, Akira Toriyama definitely has a mark on me. Being that, like playing video games as well, and being a fan of retro gaming, he did Dragon Quest and. Chrono Trigger he did the artwork for so it's just like fuck and yes yeah uh, I definitely love Dragon Ball Z Dragon Ball I haven't seen the new stuff I know that I'm kind of a bad person Dragon Ball Super I I was into I was there are some arcs of that that I liked more than others but it's just like but then again I'm such a fanboy of course I'm going to like it yeah and why wouldn't you be and it's fine and I you know, holy shit! I think I have. I thought I had some notes on Dragon Ball because what I what I tried to do was talk about the um. Well, shit! I'm, I've lost. I I did write down somewhere. It's somewhere. I did see you drop some cards. Oh shit, son! So maybe that's why. Nope, that's not that. Uh, there might be some more down there. there, is, there <laughs> There's is some more. Ha ha ha! I have one more. Hold on. But wait, there's more. There's way more. 
So we'll get a DBZ. So it is uh, Dragon Ball Z is produced by Toei Animation, created by Akira Toriyama. Toriyama. It's adapted from the final 325 chapters of the manga series. Think about that. Dragon Ball Z is adapted from the final 325 chapters. It's long running, but there are other very long running things like One Piece and Bleach and that kind of thing, both of which I don't give a shit about. Yeah, in comparison, there's just no... So Dragon Ball Z, uh, the American voices. So Christopher Sabat does Vegeta, Piccolo, Yamcha... Shenron, Kami, Mr. Popo, Corin, Goru, Poringa, Zorban, Rekomon, Barter, and Jace. One dude does all those voices. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. I would like to be half of the Ginyu Force. Yeah. And then Sean Shamel does Goku, Kinkai, Nail, Mr. Musazaki, and Vegito. So two dudes do a shitload of voices. Uh, Christopher Sabat, mostly I give I tip my hat to because what a diverse range of voices and iconic because like just Piccolo and Vegeta by themselves. Who is your favorite Dragon Ball character? <sighs> that's it's really hard for me to really. In some ways, I love Piccolo the most. Okay, I'm with that. Um, I like Piccolo and Vegeta. Those personally. are my. What I love about Vegeta specifically is the story arc of being the enemy mm-hmm. to just being kind of like, well, fuck it. I guess whatever. I'll get I'll get into some strange and have some kids and just live a life. Like I love that becoming the main being the main enemy. And they're just kind of just being there as a... That's right, because he's not really... I mean, he is a good guy, but he's not really a good guy. Yeah, exactly. It's only because someone is stronger than him that he's sort of submitted, I suppose. He's, he's a guy. He's a... But he won't submit. He's going to surpass Goku. Indeed. So I think that it's just an interesting... I like that dynamic. I like Goku in some ways because he's kind of... He's the... He's innocent and he's kind of silly and, and retarded. Retarded, but there's something really charming about him. But really, Vegeta and Piccolo all day long for me personally. I, I might have to say that Piccolo is probably my favorite character. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. So that's a, it's a great series, a long run series. It's been adapted a million times over. Its image, its mantra has been adapted into many different walks of life. If you're into fitness and you're a weightlifter or you're a fighter like there i have a workout shirt that's straight up a vegeta shirt like it's like this it is the armor yeah it's the armor the saiyan armor the saiyan, yeah i'm all and i love that i don't give a shit like i had a girlfriend that was like you need to burn that and throw that away i'm like it ain't ever gonna happen and i'm gonna wear it when we're having sex big bitch i'm take, not going to get rid of it take that I had a girlfriend that had a Pikachu backpack, and when she wanted to go out in public with it once, and I was like, nah. <laughs> but if it was a Dragon Ball Z-related backpack, I would have been like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> instead of nah. <laughs> you, you need to get all, yeah. You got one for me? So, and then the final thing I mentioned before, Cowboy Bebop as a series. The mixture, and this is what we talked about earlier, Japan taking many influences mashing them up and doing something really interesting 
Cowboy Bebop is a mixture of a Western, of a noir, Japanese culture. It is, it, yeah, Western, Western movie for sure. Adaption. But I feel like Outlaw Star was a better Cowboy Bebop than Cowboy Bebop. And I know I'm going to get mad hate for that. And I used to own, like, I owned a part of Cowboy Bebop as a show. Like, I owned cells from that show. Holy shit, son. And not only, like, cells, but ones where Spike was wearing his trench coat, which were only in very few episodes. So I used to be huge into that, too. But, like, reflecting on it, thinking about it later, it's good, but it's like... The first and last episodes were the only ones that mattered, and everything in between was just filler. See, and I guess I just I feel... To me, it was the mood, the characters, and just inhabiting... I didn't really give a shit about the plot episode to episode, to be honest with you. I just liked Jet Black. I like Spike. I like Faye, Edward, the fucking dog, Ein. Like, I just liked... You have a Corgi. I have, and I'm surprised you didn't name her Ayn. I'll be honest. So here's a fact for me personally. I tried to name my Corgi Ayn, but it didn't. she didn't take to it. She was not about it. Oh, you were one of those people. I tried to do it. She was just like <laughs> refused to respond to it. So she ended up being Nip. And that's she chose that name. It Dogs are weird like that. But yes, I will say that my first introduction to corgis really are from Cowboy Bebop. And I, I have a, I have a Pember Corgi. So that it, it is a thing. I've had the, you know, I've had it for almost 13 years. She's sitting just to my left. Yeah. She's the unofficial mascot. So Cowboy Bebop is led by team director Shinchiro Watanabe. The screen, screenwriter is Keiko... Nabamoto, character designer Tashihiro Kawamoto, the mechanical designer, because I'm telling you, the fucking ships and the technology are fucking Sword tight. Fish. Toshihiro Kawa. Nope, sorry, nope. Kamamitsusho Yamani, the composer is Yoko Kano. Yoko Kano is a big deal. Yeah, straight She's up. She's a real big deal. She's a real big deal. Developed by Sunrise and created by Hajime Yatete. You're, you're cute. Thank you. <laughs> you're real cute. I'm butchering the shit. I don't want to get any hate for this shit because, number one, I'm a connoisseur. Number two, I don't, I don't speak Japanese. I'm not good at this shit. I appreciate it, but not enough to actually properly learn how to pronounce Japanese anything. Uh, and then the American actors who play. Do we really give a shit about that? I don't. I will say, like, yes, because there's certain. They're iconic to it. Yes, I've seen it. I've seen the series both in Japanese sub and then the American dub. So Steve Bloom is Spike, Bo Billingsday, Stan? Is Jet Black. Uh, Wendy Lee plays Faye Valentine, who also plays a character in Akira, by the way. She plays uh, one of the female girlfriends. Or no, she plays the female lead in Akira. Wendy Lee does. 
the one that Kaneda chases after in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Wendy Lee voices her in the American version. And then Melissa Fawn does Edward. So I just wanted to get some factuals out there while we're just like talking shit, essentially. I'll talk shit about anime. Post-2000, boo. There are things that I do like, but I feel like that was the deciding year between like and let cool me ask you anime. This. Why? There's there's a specific thing I can think of why it sucks. In like moe anime. Like garbage. There's a lot of garbage that gets pumped on out, but there's a lot of cool things. Yeah. But why specifically? So there's a thing that happens around that time that becomes super prevalent in anime. And what is this thing? Tell me what this thing is. It's the computer cell animation. I don't think that's it. You don't think so? No, because that really hasn't become a thing that's become used until like just in the past couple of years. Like the new Berserk anime, which a lot of people hate on, which I say fuck those people because I think it's really fucking awesome. But then there's new shit like uh, Fist of the Blue Star. You know, like that you know what series terrible. that I, I am currently into that I cannot wait I want season two to come out is One Punch Man. I've been waiting on that. I think I'm more interested in... Uh... Fuck, what's the other thing that he did? No, my drunk is really coming through. <laughs> God damn it. All right, cut this out. Continuing on. Continuing on. What did you think of Blame? So Netflix has invested a crazy amount of money into anime, like a ridiculous amount of millions and millions of dollars. And one of their original series is blamed. Did you see it? I didn't watch that. The only Netflix original series of anime that I did watch was uh, Seven Deadly Sins. Did you watch Castlevania? Oh, yes, I watched Castlevania. But I don't know if I'd really count that as an anime or not. It's not really. You know... But I, being probably one of the world's biggest Castlevania fans, of course I had to watch that. So I heard some exciting news that the second season of Castlevania is going to be eight episodes. Why can't it be 24? Why can't it be infinite? True. But better than three, because I felt like I was, I'm not about... So the guy who produced that also produced the Dread movie. That recently came out. Oh shit, son! And I fucking loved that movie. Yeah, I saw it twice in theaters, and I own it. Oh, God, that's such a good movie. So, Carl Urban, boop. motherfucking perfect. Oh hell's yeah! So the guy that plays fuck, and I'm again, my drunk is showing through. So he plays the. Dwarfish King in the Hobbit series. He's a New Zealand actor. Richard Armitage plays the main dude, the hunter, I suppose, in Castlevania. Which I think is... And he also voices Wolverine in the new Marvel uh, podcast series, I suppose, on Stitcher. So I'm thinking... 
that they're using him as a test pilot to see if he'll play him on real screen because he's a scary motherfucker because he played the villain in season three of Hannibal and he was very good I never saw that I didn't watch Hannibal I'm sorry for you because it's a great series I'm sorry for myself for many um, reasons. Anyways, there are there are some current anime series, and the problem is that there's it, it's being released at such a rate it's hard to keep up on everything, and everything seems to be influenced by Jap- Japanese culture and vice versa. That there's really a blending of of lines as far as what's anime or what's Western culture. I like Attack on Titan. I enjoy that. I feel like the first season of that didn't get interesting until the last couple episodes. Well, you know. Second season, a little more so because things are a little more intense. Uh, I like Death Note. I thought that was a... I fucking love Death Note. I have both watched Death Note, the series. I have read the manga. I fucking love it. That's one of the few things that I truly am passionate about um, post-year 2000. See, there you go. So I don't, you know, I don't think we have much more at this point. I don't want to like go too heavily into one thing or another. We'll save specific uh, passions and deep dives for a later time. So, you know, until next time, this is Eric. And this is Kyle. And you've been listening to Two Poor Bastards. Peace, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>